Thanks for checking out the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Zamprin. We'll tell you why Hamilton's National Steel Car has temporarily suspended operations. Explosive testimony on day one of the House January 6th committee. Why is the LGBTQ community not as healthy as others? A new rapid testing system from McMaster is closer to reality. The Ticats tackle the riders on Saturday and the Bulldogs try to strike back in Windsor. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Our members don't come to work to die. No worker should ever have that happen. And now there are three families that have been needlessly devastated by the sudden and preventable deaths. This is a failure for National Steel Car, a failure for the Ministry of Labor to keep workers safe. The Ministry of Labor has been completely ineffective, and our members are paying the price for this action. That is the voice of Frank Crowder, the president of United Steelworkers Local 7135. This is Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. National Steel Car, as you've been hearing in the news, temporarily suspending its operations amid demonstrations aimed at highlighting recent workplace deaths at that plant in North Hamilton. Three people have died in workplace accidents at the plant in the last two years. And it sparked, as I said, a rally yesterday to call attention to safety issues at this company. Anthony Marco is the president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Fine, thanks. What the heck is happening at National Steel Car? Well, I certainly can't say that I know the internal things that are going on there, but it seems like the results of whatever is going on there are ending up in workers being killed. And it seems like the company, after the first death, which is completely unacceptable, especially in today's day and age, and, and by the way, this, this follows a long history of, of allegations of worker injuries and worker deaths at steel car that stretch back many, many years. But the predominance of these three deaths over 18 months just show that the system that has been laid out by the Ministry of Labor and the ability of the police to investigate criminal charges uh, on behalf of management for some of these for some of these deaths just isn't falling into place and is not being enacted upon and and you have a company here who's who seems to think that the cost of doing business uh, includes paying a hundred thousand dollar fine here or there just in case a worker dies and we can't put profits before worker lives i mean one death is bad enough three in less than two years including one earlier this week that's crazy. I mean, where is the accountability? Well, and that's that's a good question. When we're talking about steel car, we're not talking about deaths. They, they say it's accidental deaths. All of the deaths that you hear about, I can't say all of them, but many of the deaths that you hear about at steel car involve a large load falling upon a worker. And that's a gruesome death, and that's a preventable death. Um the accountability here, here's the scariest part of the accountability. The workers have been locked out for two days, and the company used a rally of about 60 to 70 people out front on the corner by saying that that was going to cause a health and safety concern to people coming into the plant. Nobody was going to cause a health and safety concern towards the other workers. The concern is what is being done inside the plant now to the equipment that is supposed to be investigated by the Ministry of Labor which resulted in a large load being dropped upon a worker and killing them. The accountability should rest, obviously, first at the company level. But above that, the Ministry of Labor and the Hamilton police, who have, a, who have the authority to lay charges here if they find that there's criminally negligent homicide or there's negligence, period, 
should be enacted upon. And after three deaths, we still haven't heard anything yet, and we hope that there's going to be something done. I don't know if you have the answer to this, but given that National Steel Car has temporarily suspended operations, they did it yesterday and again today, do those workers lose two days' pay? Are they now being penalized for something that the company may have been able to prevent? I'm sure that the company is going to try and say that they shouldn't be paying them, and I'm sure that the union doing their due diligence is going to grieve it and call it an illegal lockout, which which I, I, I assume it is. Uh, I assume there's nothing in their contract which will allow them to shut it down like that. So if it's an illegal lockout, it's probably going to be a grievance arbitration process, which is going to go on for two to three years, as many grievance arbitration processes do. And in the end, I, I have no doubt that the union's position will be upheld, that there is no reason to shut down the plant for two days just because there's a rally happening out front. Uh, there's rallies that happen out front of businesses all the time, and they don't shut down. Anthony Marco is the president of the Hamilton and District Labor Council, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML as we talk about National Steel Car, uh, shut down at least for the weekend uh, amid yet another workplace death. What do you think the workers are, are thinking? I, I would assume if you're a worker there, and, and there's been some, some quotes coming out from recent media articles, you've got to be scared walking into that plan. If you figure over the past hundred and... Over the past uh, year and a half, let's say, past 18 months, you have had three worker deaths. That's one every six months. The thought that every time you walk into a workplace, that there is a percentage, no matter how small that percentage is, you might say it's half a percent or one percent, there's a half percent chance that you could get killed on that shift. If you're just doing the basic math, that's a scary prospect to walk into there. And this, these are deaths which, in many cases, there's there's no... like. You might just be casually walking by on the floor. You might have nothing to do with what actually is going on because we don't we don't exactly know how each of these deaths happen. We don't know the details. I would have to think that there's a level of fear and a level of fear for their families as well because while we talk about the fact that there's three worker deaths, that's an impact on families. That's an impact on neighborhoods. That's an impact on our community. And who knows how much how much some of these workers outreached into the community and how much impact they had on their neighbors and community members around them. It's not just an isolated case where a worker dies. It's something where it has an impact on the entire neighborhood that they live in. And there's three neighborhoods right now that are suffering because of what's gone on at Steel Car. We do know that certain jobs are more dangerous than others. You know, working in radio is really low impact in terms of a life or death scenario. But no career should be a life and death scenario. Well, exactly. The, the higher the risk, the, the job, the more measures that are put in place to prevent injury and to prevent death. I mean, you've got so many, so many um, regulations that are set up, especially in industrial and in factories and stuff like that. And, and what you want to have is to make sure that in case this happens, this should happen. In case this happens, this should happen. You've got all the regulations. You've got all the training that should be put in place. And sometimes the training is exhaustive, but it's necessary. And all of those things, the Ministry of Labor has said at this point that they're going to be going back and they're going to be looking over the training that was done for all of these workers. They're going to be looking at all the records of all the equipment because all of this stuff needs to be done. If you're going to be making millions and millions and millions of dollars off of manufacturing things like rail cars, then you're going to have to pay the price to make sure that the workers who do that for you are safe. Got about a minute. Labor Ministry is investigating. Do you think anything will come out of it? And if so, how soon? Well, I guess we can be hopeful, but considering that there's been two deaths so far under the same labor minister and nothing meaningful to this point has been done, I, I don't know what to say. I mean, like I said, we, we had the recent uh, provincial election, and I'm assuming that the labor minister is either going to remain the same or at least it's going to be from the same party and nothing's been done over the last little while. I would hope that uh, at the Hamilton Police, 
put it this way. All I can say is this. If you had the same crime happen three different times over a short period of time, normally the police would set up a task force over something like that. I'm hoping that internally the police are at least considering this heavily and seriously and maybe looking back over the past two as well as not just this most recent one and thinking about laying charges where they should be laid at the man- management level. Anthony, really appreciate your time today. Uh, we will certainly be following this story in uh, the weeks or months to come. Thanks, Rick. Anthony Marco, President of the Hamilton and District Labor Council. You can get more information on this story, not only by listening to our newscast throughout the day, but online as well at 900CHML.com. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Over multiple months, Donald Trump oversaw and coordinated a sophisticated seven-part plan to overturn the presidential election and prevent the transfer of presidential power. In our hearings, you will see evidence of each element of this plan. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That was the voice of Liz Cheney. She's a Republican congresswoman from Wyoming and the vice chair of the House Six or the uh, House January Six Committee that's investigating the 2021 insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, uh, which hit prime time last night. The opening salvo from this committee was served last night, and as expected. It was explosive. In one night, I thought this committee did a phenomenal job of encapsulating what had happened, the buildup to what happened on January 6, 2021, and who was responsible. And the target, the bullseye, the finger squarely pointed at former President Donald Trump. So what's this committee aiming to do? Well, If you watched any of last night's primetime public hearing, you will have heard a bunch of American lawmakers say that the siege on the Capitol was no accident. And in fact, it was an attempted coup and a direct result of the defeated president's effort to overturn the election results from the 2020 U.S. presidential election in which Joe Biden won the presidency. And what this committee has gathered together is more than 140,000 documents and has interviewed more than a thousand people, or at least have conducted more than a thousand interviews. And the evidence that they presented even last night painted a dark picture of what the former president tried to do. And the chaos and carnage is one Capitol Police officer described it as, that erupted on the Capitol. Uh, Panel chairman, Benny Thompson, uh, I thought did a wonderful job, Democratic congressman, uh, who opens last night's hearing by praising the officers who stood in harm's way, who defended the Capitol building. They defended the Constitution against domestic enemies so that Congress could return, uphold our own oath, and count your votes to ensure the transfer of power, just as we've done for hundreds of years. Because of our democracy remains in danger, the conspiracy to thwart the will of the people is not over. They also played a number of different video clips, uh, whether it was interviews or even this montage that showed the rioters heading to the Capitol, the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, among others, being summoned there 
by Donald Trump. Trump asked us to come. He personally asked for us to come to D.C. that day. And I thought, for everything he's done for us, if this is the only thing he's going to ask of me, I'll do it. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. We also heard from former Attorney General Bill Barr, William Barr, a former right-hand man of the president, at least one of them. You know, the, the top lawyer in the land. And Barr, in video testimony that was presented last night, said he repeatedly advised Trump that there was no proof, none whatsoever, that the 2020 election had been stolen from him. told the president in no uncertain terms uh, that uh, I did not see evidence of fraud uh, and, uh, you know, that would have affected the outcome uh, of the election. And frankly, a year and a half later, I haven't seen anything to, to change my mind on that. So still to this day, two years later, not a shred of evidence, according to William Barr, has been found to even suggest that there could have been some voter fraud or something was fishy with the 2020 U.S. presidential election. Two years later, nothing. Nothing's come up. We were also shown on live TV in prime time the testimony from Capitol Police Officer Caroline Edwards, who at times, especially early on in her testimony, fighting back tears, fighting those emotions, thinking about January 6, 2021. And she told the hearing she could not believe what she was seeing on that day. It was carnage. It was chaos. I, I, can't, I can't even describe what I saw. I, never in my wildest dreams did I think that as a police officer, as a law enforcement officer, I would find myself in the middle of a battle. She basically said that, you know, law enforcement uh, in the United States, really anywhere, is not trained in hours-long hand-to-hand combat. They just don't teach that. (laughs) Combat skills, yeah, sure. But to fight an angry mob for hours, that's plural, hours, shorthanded, by the way, wasn't trained for that. She said she more or less, uh, her role was to, you know, arrest maybe a couple of people for trespassing. She suffered a traumatic brain injury when members of the Proud Boys and others pushed her to the ground as they led the mob into the Capitol. And if Repub- if any politician or any person consumes this hearing and still thinks that former President Trump did not do or, or di- did not play a part in fueling this fire, uh, they got to give their head a shake or they're just not living in reality. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Data shows members of the LGBTQ community have worse health outcomes than their heterosexual and cisgender counterparts. And the pandemic has only widened pre-existing gaps in care. June, as we know, is Pride Month. And the Ontario Medical Association says it's time to talk about LGBTQ health care issues 
So let's do that. Dr. Rose Zacharias is the president of the Ontario Medical Association. And Dr. Tim Guimon is the mental health director of HQ, a medical clinic for gay men and transgender people, opening in Toronto later on in July. Uh, Dr. Zacharias, Dr. Guimon, thanks for the time today. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, Dr. Guimon, we'll start with you. There are, uh, as I mentioned, gaps in health care for the LGBTQ community. What's going on? What kind of gaps are we seeing? Well, so we've known for quite a while that gay, bisexual, trans individuals have higher rates of suicide. And we also know that during the pandemic, the stress on the whole population has increased people's thoughts about suicide, whether they're heterosexual, cisgendered, or of the LGBTQS community. However, the rates amongst the gay, sexual, gender minority groups have increased even more. So where we saw an increase to it was something like 17% of that in population thinking about suicide, later in the pandemic, it went to 23%. It sort of shocks me to think that a quarter of all sexual and gender minorities in Canada were thinking about ending their life. So that, that sort of difference has been huge. And then the second part of that, of course, is getting access to care. So various parts of our system are, aren't necessarily set up to help specifically with those trans individuals and those sexual minorities. And the ones that have been set up, they were seeing increased wait times for their programs. Some had no wait times and then were up to like a year by the middle of the pandemic. They're starting to catch up now, but that gap in services is very concerning for us. Dr. Zacharias, I also understand that wait times for gender affirming surgery are also um, backlogged again. Absolutely. Um, Here we are, you know, at this stage post-pandemic and after having dealt with the crisis of COVID and the entire province is dealing with a a massive backlog. We talk about 22 million patient care services in general, one of those being one million of those being a a surgical backlog. But here uh, with the LGBTQ uh, population, we see that gender affirming surgery wait times are extremely long. And uh, we can see a wait of 12 to 24 months uh, for these surgeries and, and sometimes even longer. And so it really is a crisis. It's, uh, it's a message we want to amplify because we are a public health care system that indeed, you know, needs to provide equal care for all. And so this is a, a massive gap that's been, uh, that's been uh, recognized. Dr. Guimon, wait times for LGBTQ counseling programs have been stretched. What's the impact? I think it's been quite extensive. So we've seen at the three major programs that provide counseling that they, over the course of the pandemic, faced two problems. One was increased demand. The second was the effects on people in the pandemic, the staff. So counselors weren't always available. They had to stay home to to quarantine and to isolate at times and so their capacity to see people plus everyone had to switch from doing what they were used to in-person care to doing this virtually and learning how does that work so it's meant that we've seen these wait times at these as i said these rates that we've never seen before waiting a year some programs actually chose to stop accepting new referrals and you can imagine if you're in the middle of a, a mental health crisis being told well we're not accepting anyone right now can be pretty devastating. So we've seen the emergency rooms and our inpatient wards for psychiatry have been really stretched during this period as well. Dr. Zacharias, in terms of testing for sexually transmitted infections, we're seeing a rise in those cases. 
We are. And, uh, and so, you know, here we are, um, perhaps dealing, I think, uh, with the crisis of COVID. Um, there may have been a perception that, uh, that medical offices were, were closed. And this would have perhaps resulted in some of the decline in testing that we saw. Other reasons uh, for the um, for the for the decreased rates in testing is a possibility that um, you know with the lockdowns and the social restrictions, um, people were less sexually active during the pandemic. However, there may have been a stigma that played a role for those who were sexually active. For people, you know, feeling relatively vulnerable, coming to see their family doctor, or not having access to a family doctor. We know that 1.3 million people in Ontario don't have a family doctor. And so um, people without access, people being told to stay home could have definitely contributed to the problem. It doesn't mean that there were less um, uh, sexually transmitted infections in the community, but there was a a decreased testing rate, which of course makes the population more vulnerable because um, this could have resulted in increased in uh, in spread, which we have not yet fully appreciated. Well, last question, and I'll aim this at to Dr. Guimon, because you're the medical health director of HQ, a medical clinic for gay men and transgender people that's opening in Toronto July 22nd. We only have about a minute. Why is this important? Why is there a need for this? So, you know, as I explained, this is higher STI rates. We want to make sure people can get testing and get tested quickly. So it's going to be very convenient. People can come in, they swab themselves, they'll be in and out in 15 to 20 minutes, and they'll get their textures of a results within four hours, so then people can protect themselves and their community from other STIs, and they can get mental health care on site. That is amazing. Dr. Guimond, Dr. Zacharias, thank you for your time today. Enjoy the rest of the day and the weekend as well. Thank you Good very morning much. to all your community. That is Dr. Rose Zacharias, President of the Ontario Medical Association, and Dr. Tim Guimond. He's the Mental Health Director of HQ, a medical clinic for gay men and transgender people. That's opening July 22nd in Toronto. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. You know, McMaster University brings us some amazing stories day in and day out, it seems to be. And here's another one. McMaster researchers who recently developed a new form of rapid, accurate, and portable diagnostic test are now moving all of this work toward the marketplace. Yes, it's one step closer to becoming a reality for people like you and I. Dr. Leila Soleimani is an associate professor and Canada Research Chair in Miniaturized Biomedical Devices in the Department of Engineering Physics at McMaster University and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. Soleimani, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Excellent. Happy to be here. I guess congratulations are in order. (laughs) That's right. Yes, thank you. Tell us about this device. How does it work? Yeah, so this is a result of uh, a decade, more than a decade of work at McMaster University. So this device is is one that looks and feels like the glucose monitor, but it can do a lot more. So you still have a reader, a handheld reader, and um, and a cartridge that that plugs into it, uh, and it can it can diagnose um, rapidly a number of infectious diseases, uh, with with a focus right now on COVID nineteen, but it can be exp- extended to other infectious diseases. So from an application standpoint, I think many of our listeners are used to administering rapid antigen tests for COVID-19. Maybe they've gone through the PCR test. Um, Does it work in the same way? How do we use this? 
Yeah, so um, it's it's closer to to the existing rapid antigen test in a sense. So collection is similar, and and a drop is collected instead of depositing it on a what we call lateral flow test that's used in a rapid antigen test. It's deposited on a cartridge uh, that that plugs into then an electronic reader that's interfaced with a cell phone for displaying the the results. So it's no longer you visually see a line, but it can go through an app where it can it can tell you clearly whether you have the disease or not. And the nice thing is that you can buy a cartridge for you know COVID nineteen, but then you can buy a, a cartridge for another infectious disease, say influenza, but use the same reader and app to um, to do rapid testing. So it's not like you are going to supply a sample and then head to the app and and then it's going to list all the different infections you have. You have to, um, uh, I guess, purchase one that's specific that you think maybe you have. Is that uh, am I getting that right? Yeah, I mean, it can in the future look at panels so it can we can group. Um, infectious diseases based on symptoms into a panel, for example, a respiratory panel uh, or um, or a GI panel, and then use it that way. But right now, this is how we are uh, we are working on it. So right now, it's for COVID nineteen, and and perhaps later it can be built into a panel. Very exciting news from Dr. Leila Soleimani. She is an associate professor at McMaster University as researchers, including herself, have developed a new form of a rapid, accurate and portable diagnostic test and are moving that work toward the marketplace. So let's tackle that. How soon can we see this in the marketplace? Yeah, so we've partnered with uh, with an Ontario company called Zentech, who is taking over commercialization. And we're we're told the timeline is within within a year or so. They've already made significant progress in um, validation and and scale up of the technology. So this Zentech company has invested more than a million dollars to to ramp up production of this unit, correct? Yes, that's right. So once it's on the market, who will utilize this? Is it just general people? Will this be in the hospital setting? Tell us about that. Yeah, so um, I think it's it's going to hit a number of sectors. So eventually it's going to be for home use. But initially, um, we're mostly targeting the hospitality sector, um, long-term care, uh, workplaces um, that, that might want to use this. But then eventually... Uh, it, it will um, come to consumers to use them at home. What sorts of infections or viruses will this technology be able to diagnose? Yeah, so um, so on our to-do list is to to extend this to uh, noroviruses. So these are the things that that make you really sick and give you gastro symptoms. Um, hospital acquired infections um, are are on our list that, that affect elderly, like C. difficile infections um, and, um, and other respiratory viruses um, <clears throat> beyond COVID-19 on our, our, on our top priority. From a technology standpoint, um, we're all very protective of our phones and information. From a security standpoint, what kind of protocols have been put in place with this app? Yeah, so... Um, that's something that Zentech is working diligently with external partner um, to to ensure um, security as as these might be might be sent to the cloud. So uh, as far as the specifics, that's not something we're working on, but 
you know, a number of ex like, uh, uh, you know, top of the line um, uh, software and security companies are hired for mm -hmm. that. You mentioned you've been working on this with others for about a decade now, which is a long time. Um, but still, this was this was a thought well before the COVID-19 pandemic came on board. Did you see some acceleration when the pandemic began towards getting this onto the market? Absolutely. So before the pandemic, we were working with Professor Ying Fu Li to develop actually diagnostics for coronaviruses in pigs. And so when, when the pandemic happened, uh, what that allowed us to do is to, to team up with a large group of people very quickly. So that included clinicians, biochemists, engineers, scientists. So, so a large group of people that, that really at that time, we all kind of dropped everything else we, we were doing and, and came together to make this work. And so for us, the pandemic was kind of like a catalyst for, for rapidly moving this through testing with clinical sample and commercialization. I'd imagine so. Dr. Soleimani, thank you very much for your time. Congratulations on what uh, you and the team have already achieved. And I can't wait to see this in the marketplace. It's going to be uh, a big plus for many, many people. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. That's Dr. Leila Soleimani, Associate Professor and Canada Research Chair in Miniaturized Biomedical Devices in the Department of Engineering Physics at McMaster University. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. It feels great to be able to, you know, pop this thing off and um, especially to go to Sask in a place that's loud, probably one of the most, one of the prestigious uh, stadiums in the CFL. So I'm excited to get there and go be there with my boys. Uh, and, you know, we we putting the us-against-the-world thing on our back, and uh, we're excited to go. Tiger Cats running back Don Jackson is amped to play Game 1 of the CFL season as the Tiger Cats jet off to Regina, Saskatchewan today for their season-opening affair tomorrow night. You can hear the game right here on 900 CHML, beginning with the pregame show at 6, kickoff at 7. The fifth quarter will follow the game half hour after the final Whistle. And the question many fans are asking themselves in this part of the world is, can this Ticats team finally get over the hump and end the CFL's longest active Grey Cup drought? One of the individuals who's pressing all the buttons is head coach and president of football operations, Orlando Steinauer, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Orlando, good morning. How are you? Doing great, Rick. How are you? I'm good. By the way, happy belated birthday. Thank you. I appreciate it. This, we can uh, we wait for the next one. <laughs> that's that's all we can do, uh, and hopefully you'll get a, a a nice present tomorrow night. But does game one kind of feel like Christmas morning? There's a lot of anticipation, and we don't know what we're gonna get. Uh, a little bit, a little bit. You'd like to think that you control a little bit more than that. That uh, that uh, you can predict a, a few of the outcomes, but the game never goes according to plan, and. Uh, you have a game plan, and obviously there's always the in-game adjustments. But um, I'll tell you this, what, what what is the emotion is excitement. Like, it's exciting times. We're, we're getting to go. We're playing for real. So that part is very, very uh, relative to Christmas. Do we build up game one bigger than it actually is? And when I say we, we, you know, the media, the fans, everyone involved in the game, do we build it up more than it is? Because at the end of the day, it's just one out of 18 games. Yeah, but it is a sports entertainment business, so I understand the why. But I do think it is uh, it is a, a little bit of a build up, but that's okay. That's I think that adds to the excitement. And at the end of the day, um, you want people there. You want to generate excitement around the league. But nobody's going to make the Grey Cup or playoffs, and then nobody's going to be eliminated. 
Orlando Steinauer is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Coach O with the Hamilton Tiger Cats as they get set to take on the Rough Riders in Saskatchewan tomorrow night. You can hear the game right here on 900 CHML. A big plus going into game number one is that your team is relatively healthy, which always helps. How nice is it to have a, a somewhat healthy lineup going into Regina? Well, health is always part, and it's a vital part of the achievement of any football team, I believe. There's just so many moving parts, and uh, it's, it's tough once you gel, and then you may lose a couple of pieces. But, yeah, we've been relatively healthy and extremely fortunate that we didn't have any, you know, super long-term injuries coming out of training camp. Uh, we're obviously not 100%, but I've never been part of a camp in 20-plus in years as a player coach where you haven't had any injuries at all. A big part of preparing for an opponent is watching their film from the previous week or weeks gone by. How do you approach that in Game 1, given that Saskatchewan, just like Hamilton and every other team in the league, is kind of different and may have some different weapons or different tools or a different scheme? How do you prepare for Week 1? Well, I think the main thing is you do understand your opponent and you study him and you know him, but you're you're obviously you can't predict that. That's an uncontrollable factor. And as you know, Rick, from being around here and around me, we're just going to focus on the controllable factors. So the majority of our focus will remain on ourselves and our own execution and preparation. Obviously, you have to respect the opponent and know their strengths and weaknesses, but that will unveil itself over time, as will ours. Uh, one of the new additions to the CFL this season is a new aspect of the football field, and that's the hash marks a little closer together than in previous years. What impact on the game do you think that's going to have? Yeah, time will tell. I think it's it's too early. You're gonna have, you're gonna see. There's a lot of brilliant minds uh, that will come up with a lot of creative things. We're still working towards that, uh, and so I'd be definitely misleading you if I said this is what the effect is gonna have. And even predicting, there's so many there's so many variables that could go all different ways. But I do think it will have the ability to affect the game positively. I'm excited about the change, and you know both in the in the kicking game and and also on offense and defense. And I think, you know, we'll better be able to answer that maybe midway through the season. One more for you. The uh, Tiger Cats introduced the new Made in the Hammer alternate uniforms yesterday. Now, you don't have to wear one, but do you like them? Shoot, I want one. (laughs) Those things are sweet. Right there. So I'm excited. Hey, this is, uh, you know, this is just part of it. Uh, Proud to be in Hamilton. Uh, I thought that uh, everybody involved in in creating that uh, from the top down and, and, and stamping it the okay from the top is uh, just pleased with that. And obviously the outcome is what it is. But I'm excited for the players. But uh, our focus will just remain on Saskatchewan in our regular jerseys. Yeah, and uh, best of luck tomorrow night. I'm sure that the fans, uh, most of them at least, will uh, enjoy the Made in the Hammer alternate uniforms when they are worn for select games. Coach O, thanks for the time. Good luck in Regina. Hey, appreciate it, Rick. Have a great day. You too. That's Orlando Stein, our head coach and president of football operations with the Hamilton Tiger Cats, who visit Saskatchewan tomorrow night. Pre-game show on CHML is at 6. Kickoff is at 7. The fifth quarter will follow the game half hour after the final whistle. You'll be able to hear Hamilton's most popular post-game show. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Hamilton Bulldogs will try to even up the OHL championship at two games apiece when they visit the Windsor Spitfires tonight. And big news yesterday. We heard that Bulldogs president and general manager Steve Steos has been named the winner of the Jim Gregory OHL General Manager of the Year Award, and deservedly so. 
And look out! Steve Steos joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Steos, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. I'm doing great. How are you? I'm good. Congrats on winning this award. What does it mean to you? Well, I mean, uh, it's uh, it's quite an honor uh, in the you know an award with uh, you know in, in name of the late Mr. Jim Jim Gregory, just the gentleman that he was, the leader he was, the amount of people that he mentored and inspired, and uh, you know just had such a positive effect on our game. So, in that light, it's 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 quite an honor. I mean, to me, it's uh, it, it's about the people I've surrounded myself with and uh, the, the amount of work and commitment that they've done. So I really think it's more of a team honor, but uh, I'll, uh, I'll definitely accept it on behalf of our group. Game four tonight in Windsor Bulldogs, Spitfires. How are you feeling knowing that you're down two games to one in this series? Yeah, we, we feel good about where we are. I mean, we haven't played our best. Um, it's been really interesting to to see every playoff series has its own story. Um, every year has its own story. When you look back on 2018, uh, you know, uh, where we didn't ha- uh, deal with injuries. And uh, this year we are. Um, I think the fact that we went through the first three rounds without losing a game and then meet, you know, we knew Windsor we didn't take it for granted at all. But uh, certainly, you know, when you lose a game, it's something new and players have to adjust to that. So it's been uh, fascinating to watch, but full belief in our group and uh, i'm really looking forward to tonight's game uh, games one and two were both decided by a goal including the overtime in game one game uh, three on monday night was a little bit different spitfires beat the bulldogs six to three what happened in that game is that one that just got away yeah we just uh, a few events happened in the game where you know we have a puck on the goal line and then they go back and score i just think there's a sequence of events that uh, didn't go our way but nevertheless we we just weren't on top of our game i think the way the schedule has worked out where, you know, we played on Monday, played game three on Monday, and then we have a few days in between. I think it was to our advantage for a couple of reasons. One is to you know, just unlock our players and, uh, and identify why we aren't at the top of our game. We managed to do that. Um, also gave us a few days for, uh, you know, some of our to uh, to start to heal up. Maybe we were banged up a little bit. I think every team is, no doubt, but I think it's, uh, it was to our benefit this week. Steve Steos is the president and GM of the Hamilton Bulldogs, joining us here on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Are you expecting a much different team or, or a much different result tonight? Uh, yeah, of course. I have, again, have full belief in our, in our group. So as far as the you know the way we play, I think uh, I think we'll be a different team. I do. I think uh, we've had it. A game on the road against this team now, and uh, going back into their building tonight, I think there'd be some familiarity now, and, uh, and I feel like the energy's been renewed. I think that uh, there's a renewed confidence with this group, so I'm uh, really looking forward to our, our, the game tonight. You also got some TV exposure as well, which is always nice to see. I'd, I'd like to see a little more of that. Yeah, I mean, I think the production's been great by TSN. Um, you know, uh, great job by you know, all involved to tell the stories of these young men and these athletes and that, you know, just, uh, get, get, you know, shed some light on, on the actual, you know, players involved on it as well. I think they've done a great job and, uh, uh it's such a great game as you know, and uh, the more exposure you can get to the Ontario hockey league, I think, you know, um, it'll just gain more interest and inspire a uh, younger generation of, of uh, girls and boys to play hockey. We're all going to be cheering on the Bulldogs tonight as they take on the Windsor Spitfires in Game 4 of the OHL Championship. Steve, congrats on the award win once again, and good luck tonight and the rest of the way. 
Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review.